Last week, uh, we looked at trusting God in the story of Joseph, and we learned several different things, but one of the main things we took away that is, though we may not know what God is doing, we can trust him because in the end, he will use even our own mistakes for his glory and our good. And today, as we wrap up this class, we will do so by looking at these four other practical things we can and must do in our suffering um, as we strive to survive and thrive in the furnace of affliction. And as it is on the PowerPoint there, that will be praying, it will be thinking, loving, and thanking in suffering. So as we begin to look at these different categories of things we can do while we suffer to survive and thrive, we begin with praying and suffering. As we contemplate uh, this subject, we want to turn our attention then to the book of Job, the book of Job. We've referenced this book many times, and so I'm going to assume you already know much of this story as I did last week, and I'll briefly summarize what takes place in this story. In this book, we find that there is a debate occurring between who? Satan and God. And in this debate, Satan claims that Job is merely serving God. Why? Because he's giving him everything he wants. And so he accuses Job of really being a mercenary for hire. He's only serving you because you're giving him everything he wants. And so we find that Satan's attack is really against God. He's accusing God of being a colossal failure. He's failing to turn his men and women into selfless, loving servants of God. In reality, these servants of God only serve God out of self-centered purposes and reasons. Well, to the horror of many, then God lets Satan test Job to see if this is truly the case. Will Job truly love God for God if everything is stripped away, or will he prove Satan right? and turn his back on God. As we know, Job quickly loses everything. He loses his material possessions. He loses his family. And in all of this, he does not blame God. But he falls on his face, and he famously says, the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Now, up to this point, Job seems to be handling everything perfectly. But it's when Job begins to lose his health that things then begin to deteriorate quite rapidly. He begins to blame God for the troubles that he's going through. But he doesn't curse God and die as his wife wants him to do. He doesn't turn away from God, even though he senses great injustices occurring to him. He says over and over and over again in the book, this is all unfair. What have I done to deserve this? And then it's in the middle of the book that we meet Job's three friends. I'm not sure I'm saying their names right, but it's Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And their counsel to Job in these moments really wound Job severely. And the basic gist of what they are telling Job over and over and over again 
is that there is a moral order to the universe. Bad behavior leads to great suffering and pain, but good behavior leads to blessing and reward. And so therefore, Job, because of all these things happening to you, you must be in sin. You must be doing something wrong. So repent, turn from your sin back to God. As we know, this wasn't the case at all with Job. And he'll be vindicated at the end. But their mistake, this, this, this counsel that they give to Job, really stems from an inadequate grasp of the grace of God. These friends of Job have a purely moralistic theology that we ourselves can sometimes adopt. But it is ignorant of, of Genesis 3.16, where God says that because of sin, thorns and thistles will come up out of the ground for everyone. And this means that bad things will happen to people whether they deserve it or not. And so we instead find Job's friends ignorant of this curse in the beginning. And they instead adopt a view of God that is really, really domesticated. There is never a mystery in life. And so if life goes well, it's because you are living rightly. And if life doesn't go well, it's clearly your fault. But Anderson shows us that this puts God on a leash, as it were, to bring God under obligation to human morality. And this is a threat to his sovereignty. So in other words, a moralistic person like Eliphaz believes God can be managed with morality. If you just push the right buttons, if you just confess all your known sins, if you straighten up and fly right, everything will be good in your life. Guaranteed. But Job refuses to buy into this view in chapter 6. He knows his friend's view of, of this domesticated God is wrong. God can do whatever he pleases. Yet on the other hand, he won't curse God or tell him that he's being unjust. So Job won't go into either of these two directions. He refuses to take either approach, and as a result, his agony is torturous. He's waffling in the unknown. So Job and his friends, for the majority of this book, just debate back and forth three times. And it's at this point, when neither side seems to be winning, that we have a surprising turn of events as God eventually shows up at the very end before all of them. And the text tells us he does this by taking a terrifying form of a massive storm cloud or, or a whirlwind a hurricane-like force. And in this day and age, that would have been the most terrifying thing there was. This, this hurricane was such destructive power. And so God comes in this form to all of them, shocking them, and he begins to thunder out and speak to Job. He questions him over and over and over again. Now from all initial appearances here, we may assume that God is about to judge. He's about to crush Job. I mean, he's coming in this terrifying force. But this is where we begin to find a couple of surprises. 
as God begins to address Job, the text reads that he answers Job out of the cloud, out of this, this storm cloud. And what he answers them doesn't have anything to do with the concerns of Job or his friends. Now remember, they've been debating back and forth over and over again. And they were both trying to kind of speak on behalf of God. And, and Job kept saying over and over again, if God shows up, he needs to give me an explanation. He needs to reason with me. And so this is what he expects if God were to show up. If God shows up, he's going to explain himself to me. Job's friends, on the other hand, were expecting God to condemn Job if he showed up. If God shows up, he's going to condemn you because you're a sinner who's unrepentant. But when God shows up and he answers Job, he doesn't do either of these things. And this is significant. For God could have given Job an explanation if he so desired. Like there were reasons he could have given to Job. He could have said, hey, Job, there's this unseen spiritual warfare that you can't put your finger on right now, but just know that this has been a test to glorify my name, and I'm going to bless you in the end. I'm going to bring about good. Or he could have said, Job, I know it's been difficult, incredibly painful, but know that your example of faithfulness in this will be an inspiration for countless millions after your life. And only my son will know greater pain and affliction than you. But here, when God answers Job, we don't find any kind of explanation whatsoever given to Job. Not, not even a hint of it. Why is that? Why does God not give Job any answer to all the pain and suffering he's gone through? I think part of the answer is to show that what we ultimately need in our deepest sufferings are not necessarily answers or explanations for our sufferings, but we need the presence of God who is with us in our sufferings. We need to see God and know his presence as the all-powerful, all-wise, all-knowing God. And this would be enough. Anderson here, again, is, is helpful. He says, God is not this caustic, confrontational deity who instead seeks to rebuke Job and ridicule him. Instead, God comes in his fullness and brings to Job an overwhelming experience of the reality of God. Thus, Job and the reader is put in his place, not by rebuke, nor by warning against questioning God, but by the gracious advent of God who allows himself to be seen in as much as that is humanly possible. And as a result, the appearance of God, overwhelming as it is, can only be understood as an act of grace. So when God, when Job sees God here, we have to see that there is an overwhelming fullness of God's glory, and it is his presence with him. And it's what we need if we're going to survive in our own suffering. We need to see God and experience his presence with us. And this is ultimately found in Jesus Christ, who reveals God to us perfectly 
and brings his presence to us. So there are a couple of surprises here. And the first is, he doesn't address any of their concerns. But then secondly, God affirms and vindicates Job at the end of this story. Well, Job's friends expect condemnation of Job as a sinner, God seems to completely vindicate him at the end of this account. And after he's done speaking to Job and, and revealing his presence and glory to him, he says to him, I'm angry with you and your two friends, for you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. Now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer a burnt offering for yourselves. Then my servant Job will pray for you and I will surely accept his prayer and not deal with you as your folly deserves. For you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. God in doing this is putting Job in the right. His friends were wrong and now he's telling him, you need to go to Job. He needs to pray for you. And in this, there is some vindication for Job. But this part of the story has led some to have questions. Why does it seem that God is affirming Job so much at this point? Why is he vindicating Job like this? I mean, if we read the account, Job curses the day he was born. He challenges God's wisdom. He wonders if he really knows what he's doing. He cries out, he complains bitterly, and he expresses deep, deep doubt about God's goodness and everything that he's going through. So it doesn't seem that Job was the perfect example of the faith at all throughout the entirety of the story. So why would God vindicate Job like this and speak so positively of him near the end of Of course, the first reason is because God is gracious. He's forgiving. But the crucial thing, I think, to notice is that through all of his suffering, Job never stopped praying to God in his troubles throughout the entirety of the narrative. Yes, he complained, but he complained to God. He doubted, but he doubted to God. He screamed and yelled but he did it in God's presence throughout the narrative. And no matter how much agony he was in, he continued to speak to God. He kept seeking him. And in the end, God basically says, Job, you have triumphed. You were in the right. Not because all was fine, not because Job's heart was pure in all cases, but because Job determined to seek the face of God in his suffering. His suffering did not drive him away from God, but toward him. And that made all the world of difference. And it's this truth that can provide great comfort to all of us in our suffering. For the Bible says that God is near to the brokenhearted. He upholds all who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down before him. And to believers in Christ, he says, I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. And of his sheep, he says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. 
And so this means that even if we cannot feel God in our darkest, most dry moments, He is still there. And we must run to Him in such moments, even as Job does. He is completely raw before God. He's transparent. And we can be with God as well. So this means we must pray. Even if you are dry and at the end of yourself because he is there with you in the darkness. We must at times read the scriptures and hear God's word to us even if it is agony at times. And in moments where we lack the words to speak to God, we can pray the psalms of laments or even the rich prayers of Christians who have gone before us in dark moments such as Job. One such book, if you're not aware, is The Valley of Vision, which is a collection of Puritans, the prayers of Puritans. It, it has people like Charles Spurgeon in it, Isaac Watts, John Bunyan, and many, many more. And so in these dark moments, in our hurt, in our suffering, with our doubt and our despairs, with our pain and our anxiety, we must, as Job does, continue to seek the presence of God with it all. And speak to him. Pray to him. And if we ever doubt, if we ever doubt that God is with us in the darkness, we must again remember Jesus, who is the ultimate Job. For, for Jesus was willing to die, well considered by friend and foe alike. Job, Jesus like Job, would be naked penniless, and in physical pain. He would be homeless, stripped naked, and tortured on the cross. And while Job was relatively innocent throughout the entirety of the account, Jesus was absolutely innocent. And he was completely abandoned by God. Far more than this, Jesus, like Job, would be assaulted by Satan in far more significant ways. But in the greatest reversal of all, Satan only brought about the achievement of God's salvation and grace to all of us. And so when we suffer without relief, when we feel that we're absolutely alone, we can know that God is with us because Jesus bore our sin and he will be with all of us, even in our darkest moments. In the end, it will work out for ultimate good. And this can be seen even as we read near the end of the account where God blesses him and he gives him far more than he ever had in the beginning. And the same is true for us. Though we may not have all the answers given to us, we know that God is somehow working in and through it for his glory and our good. And so we can trust him, we can run to him, we can pray to him. And we can call out to him in the greatest of our sufferings, with doubts and questions, even as Job does. Do we have any questions on, on this point? Job, any, any thoughts that you have on this account? There's a lot here. And it's a story that I encourage us to continue to integrate ourselves into, into this great narrative that gives us so much. We must be. Yeah, because what happens to those friends at the end? I mean, they are just getting smacked so hard by God at the end. and that, That's a reminder to us. We, how we counsel people who are suffering, God takes that seriously. And for us to assume we know everything there is to put 
pretend that we ourselves are God, we're omniscient, we know exactly what's taking place. And we got we gotta woo go back there. That that's that is a mark of pride. And I think you're absolutely right there. And Job says, Yeah, Job's spoken truth about me, but not you guys. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's something to be encouraged about too in, in seeing God and saying interact. I think our world likes to portray like Evil, good, yin and yang, you know, the, the conflict is always going on, and who's going to win in the end? We don't know this dualistic view of the world. In this story, Satan is completely domesticated. He, he's on a leash. He can only do what God allows. And, and more than that, God knows exactly the outcome. It's all rigged in his favor. He knows that same with us. He'll be there. He'll help us. And it's not as if um, we're, we're fighting a battle, you know, question mark, and will we win in the end? Yes, we will. We can already see God doing that here. He knows what Job can handle, and he only allows Satan to do it. All right. We'll continue on here. Last, we'll look at the peace of God in suffering with, with thinking, thanking, and loving as means of obtaining that peace. One of the main things I think we lack in our suffering is peace. We have anxiety. We have unrest. We have pain. We have despair sometimes. And as we think of the early Christians, we realize that they also experienced much of this suffering. One particular Christian who suffered greatly was the Apostle Paul. Paul suffered potentially more than any other Christian that we can think of written in the New Testament other than Jesus. And yet, despite all the suffering he went through, all the pains we kind of have to wonder, how did, how did Paul do this and yet have peace with God? We see him go through affliction over and over and over again, and yet he says, I have peace no matter my circumstance. And so how did Paul have peace in suffering when he was going through terrible, awful things? Was he just super spiritual? Did he just have the naturally God-given abilities and power to just grind through it, no matter what circumstance he was in? Well, Paul tells us the secret in Philippians chapter 4, specifically in verses 11 and 12. In writing to the Philippians, he says, you were in fact concerned about me, but lacked the opportunity to show it. And now I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I find myself. I know how to make do with little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. It's from this chapter, the entirety of it, that we learn several things about the peace of God. And first, Paul says over and over again, I've learned the secret of being content. That is, I've learned the secret of having peace, being satisfied in all circumstances, whether he's rich or not, whether he's encountering difficulties or not. Paul can be content in all of it because he's learned to have it. Peace and contentment is something I imagine we all desire to have no matter what we're going through. Whether that's the bills we have to pay each and every week, to a competitive work environment, to a difficult boss, to children at home who won't listen to us, to cleaning up the dishes, to doing the laundry, to the chaos and hardships that come on us each and every day. We want to have peace 
in the midst of a busy schedule and the chaos we encounter. And Paul tells us here that this is something we can have in all of those situations, but we must learn to have it. It doesn't come naturally to us. It's something that must be pursued. The second thing we learn is that peace is not merely an absence of anxiety or fear, but peace is the presence of something. It is the sense of feeling protected. Look with me at verse 7 here. Present your request to God, and the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds. This Greek word translated guard means to completely fortify and surround, as in fortifying a building or surrounding a city to protect it from invasion. And if you have a small army around you protecting you, then you can sleep really well at night. And that's the idea we have here. Now this is a, a very different idea than how our world thinks about obtaining peace in our society. Today, when you read books or websites on overcoming anxiety or handling fear, I think they usually talk about removing thoughts, negative thoughts. They say, don't think about that. Don't let those negative thoughts come into your mind. Expel them completely. But the peace of God is not the absence of negative thoughts, but it's the presence of God himself with us. Paul again makes this clear in verse 9. Do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. This is what Paul tells us again in verse 9. The God of peace will be with you. So Christian peace does not begin necessarily with getting rid of negative thinking. Instead, it begins with the presence of God in your life that enables us to face those hardships. Christian peace is rooted in God, the presence of God with us. That no matter what happens, everything will ultimately be okay, even though we might not be okay in the moment. There's a security in knowing that God, who is orchestrating all things together for good, is with us. And there's a security then that comes when we are aware of this. Now, as we mentioned, this doesn't come naturally. This is something that is learned. So how do we learn to have this kind of peace no matter our circumstance, no matter our suffering that we are going through? Well, Paul doesn't give us a, you know, here's four steps for guaranteed inner peace. He, he, does, he doesn't do that for us here. But he does give us advice. He does give us disciplines that we can practice so that we can learn and these three disciplines of sorts are ones that we can engage in regularly and continue to develop. And that is thinking, thanking, and loving. So we start with the discipline of thinking then. We come back to Philippians 4, 8, and 9. Paul tells the believers that whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is pure, think about such things. Dwell on it. And the God of Now, I think sometimes when we hear the terms noble and right, uh, we might think that Paul is talking about these inspirational, high, lofty thoughts in general. But Pauline scholars tell us that this is not the case. He's not talking about this general loftiness of mind. He's rather speaking to 
the teachings of the Bible. He's talking about God, sin, Christ, salvation, the world, human nature, and God's ultimate plans for the world in the plan of salvation. And so Paul says, think about these kinds of things if you want peace. Think long and hard about the core doctrines of the Bible. And so where our world tells us that peace is found primarily in getting rid of negative thoughts and emptying your mind through meditation, Christian peace operates in almost really the exact opposite way of the world, not from thinking less, but thinking more intensely about truth. Now, someone might say at this point, you know, you're talking about doctrine and truth, but what I really need is comfort. That's what I need. But I think it would be a mistake to separate the two. We can't separate the two. For our comfort comes from the truths that we saturate ourselves in. Our peace comes from the reality that Jesus Christ did come to earth and did die for us. Our peace comes from the reality of a resurrected Lord who is making all things new in the end, who's sitting at the right hand of God and who will, every, will put every wrong right. And so there is great comfort then in thinking in these truths, dwelling on them. And what Paul is doing then showing us that if you are a Christian today who has little peace in life, it might be, not always, it might be that we're not thinking hard enough about the truths of who God is and what he is doing for us. For peace comes from a disciplined thinking and, and, and a working out of the implications of what we believe. In our world today, our we find ourselves distracted, perpetually. We find ourselves unable to think clearly for anything about, for any length of time. If you're a mom, I, you know, you're distracted with your kids over and over again. It's hard to think clearly at those times. If you're at work, you know, you're busy with your phone, your emails, uh, other things, your, what your spouse wants of you. And so there's little time when we are facing anxiety, when we're facing hardship, to think on what bring ourselves back to the truth. But as Paul reminds us here, it, it comes from the God of peace who is in Christ. We have to dwell on the truths of the Scripture. Next then, we have the discipline of thinking. We can learn then the discipline of thinking. We can learn the discipline of thanking. Coming back to Philippians 4, looking at verses 6 and 7, he says, don't worry about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds. As we look at these verses here, we find that Paul puts thanksgiving over and against anxiety. And this is really counterintuitive if, if we think about it for a moment. What we would think the logical order of operation should be is that we make our requests to God, and then when God answers our prayers, we thank him. That, that's how we, we logically think. But that's not what Paul says here in these verses. He instead says, you thank God at the same time you ask him, regardless of how he might answer your prayer. And so why should we 
thank God ahead of him answering our prayers. I mean, he might not answer in the way we want to. Why thank him before he answers our prayers? But in calling us to thank God as we make our requests to God, Paul is essentially calling us to trust God's sovereignty, rule, and authority over our life and our history. He's telling us that we won't be content or have peace until we make our heartfelt requests with acknowledgement that our lives are in his hands. And so when we make a request with this acknowledgement before God, with thanksgiving that he knows what is best and will answer in the best way possible, we can thank him. We can thank him truly knowing that he will do good by us and that no matter the outcome, he is still good, wise, and purposeful. So Paul calls us to thank him because we trust him and we believe that he knows what he's doing. And our thanksgiving in making our requests to God simultaneously evidences that trust in the goodness of God. So we can thank God with the knowledge of Joseph and, and Paul in knowing that God is orchestrating all things for good. And so we can thank him while we make requests to him. So there is the discipline then of thinking, of thanking, and then really the discipline of loving to draw on this peace that we have. Paul tells us not only to think on whatever is true, noble, right, and pure in this chapter, but also whatever is lovely and admirable and praiseworthy. And in this, Paul is not only urging his readers to order their thoughts and to think rightly, but he's calling them to make sure they're loving the right things in an ordered way. So it's important not only to think the right things, but to love the right things for peace with God. Part of the reason we suffer is that we love material things too much. We love things that we have no control over whatsoever. And this leads often to disappointment, suffering, and, and pain. But if we love the one that is unchanging, the one who never changes, that is God and his presence and his love for us, we will never be disappointed in the end. For we realize that God's love is the only thing that can't change and won't change and can't be lost. And his love is not based on the ups or downs of life or how well we live. It is his grace. And so it is something that not even death itself can take away. So it is necessary then that we love God fully and completely as we know. Love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength with the entirety of your being. Now, if you were like me in middle school or high school, you, ha you have this question that always comes to your mind. You know, if I'm supposed to love God with everything that I am, uh, well, what about the other things that I love? Do I have to, like, stop loving them? You know? I mean, we all love a ton of different things. So does this mean we have to stop loving these other things in order to love God with everything that we are? And, and honestly, that's what I mistakenly believe. I have to detach myself from everything so I can love God more. But what we are being called to do is to reorder our loves. To reorder our loves. And so our problem is not that we love our career or our family too much, but that we love God too little in proportion to them. 
C.S. Lewis writes, it is impossible, it is probably impossible to love any human being simply too much. We may love him too much in proportion to our love for God, but it is the smallness of our love for God, not the greatness of our love for many, that constitutes the inordinate hatred. So the way we gain peace with God is to love him supremely. And we reorder our loves through repentance and faith as we sense some things are more important than God in our life. So how do we do this then practically? How do we love God rightly as we should? Do we just try to tell ourselves, just love God more today, Josh? Do you just will yourself into do it? But rather than doing this, this type of brute force technique, we are instead to let our emotions, our love, come from gazing upon the glories of God in Christ Jesus. It comes from meditating, from dwelling on the truth of who God is in Jesus. And I think this is what, what Paul is really getting at here. He says, the peace of God keeps your hearts and minds, not just in God, but in Christ Jesus who makes God concretely real to us. So we love God by gazing upon the glories of Jesus Christ. And we do this each and every week as we come together to worship. We remember together who Jesus is. We remember together what Christ has done on the cross for us. That Jesus got what we deserved, including the cosmic profound pain and restlessness. We remember that Jesus lost all of his peace on that cross so that we could gain eternal peace with God. And so by gazing upon the character and the work of Jesus for us, we are enabled and empowered to grow in our love for God as we deepen in our own understanding week by week of his love for us. Now to tie all of this together, this this thinking, this thanking, and this loving, is the story of Horatio Spafford. Am I saying that right, Horatio Spafford? What is that? Spafford, is it Spafford? Okay. Never know how to pronounce these names. Now, many of you may already be familiar with this story, but Spafford was an American lawyer who lost everything that he had in the Chicago fire of 1871. And only two years later, after losing everything, he sent his wife, Anna, and their four daughters on a ship across the Atlantic Ocean to England. Unfortunately, the ship hit another ship, and it began to sink. And the ship went under the water, and they were all scattered in the waves. And his four girls ended up drowning. Anna, his wife, was found floating unconscious in the water by a rescue ship. And once they took her to England, she cabled Spafford just two words. Saved alone. When Spafford was on the ship on his way to England to bring his wife home, it's here that he began to write the well-known hymn, It is well with my soul. He pens the words, When peace like a river. Those are the words that he wrote in response to his four girls drowning in the waves. Peace like a river. And this is what we need to think about when he wrote this hymn. How could a man dealing with grief seek 
the peace of God. Find the peace of God like a river flowing over him. How is it that he does this um, in the hymn effectively? And what in the world does Jesus and his work of salvation have to do with this peace? Why bring up the subject of his own sin at such a time? If we think on, the, on these words that we know so well, he writes, My sin, O oh the bless of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. So he talks about Jesus, he talks about sin and this peace that he has. And how does, how does this relate to his four dead daughters drowning? Like, what does this have to do with any of that? It has everything to do with it. Because when things go wrong, one of the ways we lose our peace is that sometimes we think that we are being punished by God. But as Spafford did, so we do. We look to the cross and we remember all the punishment fell on Jesus. And when we think that perhaps God doesn't care about the pain and suffering we are going through, we look at the cross again. For at the cross, God speaks to us and says, I too have lost a child for you. And I've done this voluntarily so that I could bring you into my family. And so in this hymn written by, by Spafford, we, we really find a man who is thinking he was thanking, and he was loving himself into peace with God, even with this horrific loss. And if it worked for him in such circumstances, if it worked for Paul, so it will work for us too, as we think on these things, as we thank God, and as we strive to love God. Let's pray. Do we have any comments or questions as we close this morning? Oh, it's 9.47, so we are done by. We'll go ahead and pray. Father, we, we thank you for your mercy, your grace to us. And we just ask, Lord, that as we do encounter sufferings, that we would handle it rightly and that we would be better equipped to help others who, too, are suffering greatly. Give us the heart of Jesus for those who are hurting and help us, Lord, to trust him above all when we ourselves go through tragedies of all sorts of kinds. May we not forget to run to Christ in the midst of our hardships, and trust Him in everything. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you are dismissed.